I am so super impressed. Your greeting skills are really coming right along. I actually was prepared to have uh, some greeting instruction and even a practice session, but you guys did so well, we'll skip that for now. Oh, first, I'm going to dismiss the elementary kids. Are there any elementary kids that are ready to get out of here? Sounds like it. So elementary kids, you guys are dismissed. You can go with teacher Ann or teacher Heather. And then youth group, if you guys are ready to get out of here, uh, middle school, high school, Pastor Chris is ready to rescue you from this service even now. The rest of you, I'm super excited. We're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning. Um, fantastic text. And if you don't have a Bible, you might want one, and we have them for you. Raise your hand and we'll bring one right to you. Of course, you can use a Bible that's on your phone or uh, anywhere. Don't use the Chinese Bibles that are uh, there in the seat backs in front of you un unless you can read that. That's fine too then. So, um, hey, I, I want to reiterate what Pastor Chris said. We're super excited about some of the different fall small group offerings that, um, that are kind of coming together. We're, we're sort of just in time figuring out the final details uh, of those. But we'll have a couple different midweek kind of meeting opportunities for life groups, um, probably a study through the book of Ephesians taught by Pastor Jeff, uh, which I think will be here in the fellowship hall in the back. And then as well, the, the sermon discussion group where you guys get to get together each week and talk about where I got it wrong and, and how it should have been better. Um, that'll also be happening on Wednesday nights probably over at the upper room, which is the church office just over on uh, Old Middlefield Way. Um, so uh, anyway, couple diff and then some different uh, small group opportunities for the men and for the women. Um, there's going to be a, a great class that we're going to offer in October, which I'm excited to talk about in the coming weeks. But anyway, just some neat stuff to come. We're kind of in a little season of a pause here for a couple of weeks while we close out some summer things and, and get ready to ramp up for the fall. But um, an exciting time. So with that said, do you guys want to do the greeting again or do you think you got it? Think you got it? So listen, the heart behind the greeting, uh, most churches don't even do it anymore, right? Because it's so awkward. Lord forbid we have to say hi to somebody that we don't know. Take this from an introvert at heart, right? I don't like the greeting time either. And yet, it is so very important for us as a church family. And it's an opportunity, the heart behind it, you guys, is not just to say hi, 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 you know, peace, peace be with you. But it's more so to really connect with somebody that's sitting around you and even more importantly, maybe even somebody you don't know. I, don't, I would just assume you get up and walk to the other side of the sanctuary and meet somebody, ask them how their week was, ask them how you can pray for them and do it right then and there. It would be great if it took, you know, took us five minutes or so to do that greeting time uh, just as a time of connection because we know what happens after the service. People bolt for that car like we're gonna close the parking lot, right? So. Anyway, let's do it during, uh, during the service. Anyway, let's pray and just ask that the Lord would bless uh, our time now as we finally get uh, to his word. So, Father, we thank you so much for today, Lord, and I thank you for each and every person that you've brought here this morning, Lord. I thank you for each and every person who's tuned in with us and watching, Lord, from wherever they are that they're watching, Lord. And we just pray for each one of us, Lord, that you'd minister to our hearts today, Lord. We pray for open hearts, Lord, to hear what your spirit has to say to your church. 
And Lord, we pray first and foremost that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here this morning, Lord. We pray that you would be our teacher, uh, and we ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Again, Colossians chapter 3, and we've now come roughly to the midpoint in our study through Paul's letter here to that church at Colossae. And we're going to be looking this morning at just the first four verses of chapter 3. And we're taking just these four verses because they are an important four verses, both in terms of the structure of the book itself, but even more importantly uh, for each of us in our own lives as individual believers. And we've been watching now for two full chapters as the Apostle Paul has really been building this wonderful case against this set of false teachings that these false teachers were bringing there into the church at Colossae. It was an early form, as we've said, of what would later become known as the heresy of Gnosticism. And it was all that mixed together with this kind of a healthy dose of this strange oriental mysticism. There was a strong you know, flavor of Jewish legalism that was brought in. And all of it sort of rolled up into one, if you will, to sort of form a set of all of these extra things that they said that you should mix in and kind of add on to the gospel of Jesus. And so Paul has really built up this argument against these false teachings. We saw in chapter one, first of all, he kind of built in to the supremacy and the centrality of Jesus Christ. And then as we got into chapter two, we saw him really build up the sufficiency of Jesus Christ alone. And we saw all of these warnings against the addition of these man-made philosophies and all of these legalistic practices to our faith in an attempt to kind of perfect ourselves in the faith or to move forward in the faith. And, and now, as we reach these first four verses of chapter three, we're gonna reach what is really, I think, kind of the full ascent, kind of the really the pinnacle of Paul's point doctrinally. And then next week in, in verse five, we're gonna kind of start our descent, if you will, into all of the practical, right? We're gonna really get down into the nitty gritty of all of the practical application of these truths and what it really looks like when they are kind of worked into and then lived out of our lives. And so these four verses that we're gonna look at today, think of it, they, they kind of act like a bridge and they kind of bridge together these two different parts of the letter the doctrinal with the practical. And what they also do is they really reinforce for us this foundational New Testament truth that I think really undergirds the whole of our Christian lives. And they really give us this insight into, you know, kind of living life on a higher level. 
And so it really seemed, at least to me, that to take a whole Sunday morning and to really just kind of focus in or to drill down or to unpack or whatever picture works for you, to really just look at these four verses would be well worth our time together. So look with me at what Paul says, right? So picking up in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, we kind of come to this wonderful conclusion that Paul comes to based on everything that he's written so far. He starts off, he says in verse 1, he says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. So here he starts right out. This is the ultimate solution to our desire for sanctification. And he points our focus straight up to heaven and he places it solely onto the person of Jesus Christ. Again, to say that all of these solutions which the Gnostics and all of these other people were proposing, right, the Gnosticism and the legalism and the mysticism and then that Christian sort of asceticism that we saw last week, right? Don't do this and don't do that and stay away from this and stay away from that. All of these that Paul said were the commandments and doctrines of men that he said had indeed an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion and false humility and neglect of the body, but he said that they are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. So all of these different ways that they were claiming you could try to follow in order to grow in your relationship, Paul says that all of those things are just the things of the earth and what we need are the things from above. Right? We don't need an earthly solution, we need a heavenly one. And in fact, we already have it in the person of Jesus Christ and in him alone. And what we're going to find as we go through these four verses is that that title, Christ, right, which means Messiah, right, Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, we're going to see that title used four different times in just these four sentences that make up these four verses. In verse 1, he says, with Christ and where Christ. Verse 2, he talks about with Christ uh, again, pardon me, in verse 3. Verse 4, he finally talks about when Christ. And you just simply can't shoehorn more of Jesus Christ into four verses than Paul does. Uh, understand, the Apostle Paul had quite a vocabulary, right? He knows how to write. He also knows what pronouns are, right? And it would have been very easy for him to simply use Jesus' title as the Christ, right? The anointed one. For him just to simply use that one time and then simply to refer to him as, you know, he or him in, in the remaining verses. But what he does is he repeats this beautiful term, Christ, over and over again. And he does it absolutely for emphasis. And the point that he's making is really to drive home this point that he's been making. Again, that everything we possibly need, both concerning our salvation and our ongoing sanctification, all of those things are found solely in Jesus and they cannot be found anywhere else. It's very similar to what Peter wrote in his second letter to the church. We've referred to this verse often. 
But he declared the same thing. Speaking of the Lord, he talked about his divine power having given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue and by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. In other words, if Jesus Christ can save us, which is the far greater miracle, right? That is the far greater thing. But if he can save us, then he is certainly capable of sanctifying our lives as well. Now, sanctification, right? This big sounding sort of theological word that we've thrown out three times already this morning. It, it simply means it's that separation of our life now as Christians from the definitions and the ways of the world, the separation from those things and toward God. Or most simply, it is just the process by which we are becoming less like ourselves and more like Jesus. And Paul tells us in the Thessalonians that it's God's will for our lives, right? And here we see that it's the work of Jesus alone through the power of his Holy Spirit. Understand, Jesus is not in the business of saving us and then realizing that he's just so powerless in the face of the pull of our sin that he goes, goes oh, you know, uncle, I just can't deal with this person. And then somehow he turns us over, right, to some sort of philosophy or some sort of legalism to produce that holiness or to produce that sanctification in us. It doesn't happen that way, and that just sounds stupid when we say it, doesn't it? But the point is that the very one who saved us is, has every intention of sanctifying us. And what Paul is telling us is that Jesus doesn't need any help in that regard to accomplish it. And in fact, he's already accomplished it. Because notice something interesting here. I think that in using Jesus' messianic title for Christ, certainly Paul's pointing us to his messianic work on the cross, but he's also pointing us to his high priestly work on our behalf. And this whole idea, look at the verse there where it talks about Jesus being seated at the right hand of God. This is a fantastic scriptural picture, not just theologically, but practically. And here's why. The right hand of any ruler was the place of ultimate power. It's the place of greatest majesty and greatest power. And so the fact that we see Jesus forever enthroned there in heaven now, and further, the fact that he's sitting there shows us that his work on our behalf is done. In Hebrews chapter 10, maybe this is familiar to you, speaking of Jesus and his work as our high priest, this is what it says. It says that after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, it says that he sat down at the right hand of God. And it says that with great significance because it says it in contrast to all of the other priests who had ever come before him or would ever come after him. And here's why. Understand that both in the tabernacle first and then later in the temple, 
there were, by, design, by divine design, there were no seats. Right? So there was nowhere for the priests who were ministering there all day, each and every day. There was nowhere for them ever to sit down because their work was never to be finished. The priests in the tabernacle and then in the temple, they effectively offered the same sacrifices day after day, which never really took sins away, but all those sacrifices did was to push them back a little bit. But Jesus' work on the cross was once for all. And through that work, he accomplished everything that we need to both be reconciled back to God and also to then be indwelt by the Spirit of God and empowered by the Spirit of God, right? Through Jesus Christ, who it says is simply seated there in that ultimate place of power and majesty, and he's resting and he's ready and he's available to us as we come, what? Boldly to that throne of grace, Right, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need, Hebrews chapter 4. Right, coming to this Lord whose work is done, coming to this Christ who's seated at that right hand of power and of majesty, there is no greater power and there is no higher place that, that we can go. The Christ that has come is the Christ whose work is done. And him enthroned there, what that says is that all authority on heaven and earth affirms the fact that we have been bought by his blood. We belong to him. And so Paul's telling us here that we can go there and we can now seek him and we can do it with complete confidence. And Paul says that that's exactly what we need to be doing. We need to be seeking him consciously because that word there that he uses for seek it really has this sense of to, to seek or to strive earnestly right so the first step to living life on a higher level is to seek earnestly after these heavenly things right it's an active word it means it's something that we have to do it's something that doesn't just come naturally to us we need to consciously seek. We need to continually set, uh, you know, the affections. We need to firmly fix our hearts on him because we all know what happens and where our hearts go when we don't do that, right? When we don't fix our hearts firmly on him, our hearts get all mired down in the things of the world, which Paul says at the very beginning of that verse, that isn't even where we live anymore. Amen? Because clearly, Paul says that we're to realize as Christians, look right at the beginning of verse 1, that we've been raised with Christ. He says, if then you were raised with Christ, then seek those things which are above where he is. Now, some of your translations might say, since you were raised with Christ. And that really, honestly, is the better sense of Paul's point and of the language that he used under the inspiration of the Spirit. This isn't the if of maybe, but it's what they call the if of argument. It basically sets up this condition, kind of an if-then or a since-then kind of a reaction. There was no question in Paul's mind 
about this question, right? Every single one of us that knows the Lord, we've been raised with Christ. Effectively, he raised us from that spiritually dead condition. That spiritually dead condition in which we all once lived where we had no capacity to appreciate any of these wonderful things that we sang about this morning, right? We had no capacity to appreciate the forgiveness or the love of God or the grace of God. Heaven itself had no real attractiveness to us. But instead, we were always drawn to these other things, these different earthly things, whatever it was that we were into. And yet now, you know, these heavenly things, those things which are above, those are the things now that have been birthed into our hearts and into our minds by virtue of the fact now that we've come to know the Lord Jesus. And since we've now been raised with him, we haven't been raised in him to continue living in the life that we once lived before we came to know him. Because now our focus and our desires, our lives should look completely different. Because our hearts before were completely focused on self, right? Our, our emotions, our attractions were all focused on these temporary things, these worldly-based things and thinking and teaching and philosophies and even these world-based religions. But Paul says that now what captures our hearts and what really captures even just the, the emotional side of us, those things should be dominated by the pattern of heaven, right? They should all be oriented toward the things of heaven, focused on eternal things that are gonna outlive this present life, right? All of the truth that have their realities and their origin there in heaven, have their origin in God, we need to place our hearts and put our affections on those things. And this is kind of the thing that he's been laying out through this whole book, right, as he deals with this Gnosticism. Because again, they were trying to have these false teachers to pull God's people into these false philosophies, to pull us into that tradition and that legalism and all those extra biblical activities, let alone right, kind of the, the sex, drugs, rock and roll, or, or, you know, YOLO, right, you only live once kind of philosophy now that we see that our secular world and our culture, all of these things that the culture is advancing, all they do is they take our eyes and they take our hearts off of heaven and they pull us back into this sick kind of selfism. Because again, they remove our affections from heaven and they transfer those affections to the dismalness and the messiness and the fallenness and the hopelessness of this world. And Paul says, no, right? It's like he said to the Philippians, he said, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue and if there is anything praiseworthy, he says, meditate on these things. Right? That's where our affections are now to be. It's on those priceless things, right? And when he tells us there to seek those things that are above, 
again, that word seek is a wonderful word. It carries not only the idea of something we're supposed to do continuously or something we're supposed to do earnestly, but also it has this idea that you are seeking something that is very dear to you and was lost by you. Something that you desperately want to find. It has a real intensity to it. It's also in the present tense. Right? So it's something that we're always to keep doing. We're to always keep seeking after these things that are above. We're never ever to cease doing that as Christians. Right? There's nothing else in life, in the course of this life, in this world, that should capture our hearts or move our hearts away from that longing for heaven itself. So Paul says, look, you can't still stay focused on all of that stuff because since you've been raised with Jesus, you need to be focused on Jesus. And this is this problem that Paul has been pushing, right? That we've brought out these last few weeks because we as human beings, we really only have one focus. We really only have the ability supremely to focus on one thing at a time, at least as it relates to our hearts. And Paul knows that if we allow our focus to be drawn to man's ideas and man's traditions and then the cares and concerns and the culture, all of that stuff that's around us down here on this earth with us, because we do have just that singular focus, it means that in order for us to focus here, that our focus is being pulled off of the things that only Jesus has brought into our lives. And we all likely know this to be true from our own experience. You know, anyone in, in the world can engage in and can focus on earthly things, except that for us as Christians, our portion should be different, amen? It should be different than the things that the rest of the world is focused on. And to be pulled away from those things means that our hearts are being pulled down from the things that are above. They're being pulled back down to these earthly things. And this is exactly what Jesus was illustrating when he, in the parable of the sower, as it relates to the word of God and the way that it finds its place in our hearts, uh, in the soil of our hearts. He said that some of the seeds, he explained that these are the ones sown among thorns. They're the ones who hear the word and the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so Paul's just really echoing and kind of amplifying that same principle here in verse one. And then he continues in verse two to say essentially the exact same thing, but in yet a different way. In verse two, he says, set your mind on things above not on things on the earth. You never thought we were going to get to verse 2, did you? And yet here we are, right? Verse 2. So Paul says not only do we have to seek those things which are above, but we need to set our minds on those same things. Again, to reiterate yet again, but now specifically speaking of our minds, that our focus needs to be upward towards heaven. Right? We need to be focused on the eternal, not the temporal. 
Again, to the Corinthians, he said, we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. And so here in writing to the Colossians, he's making the same point, and he's, making, he's saying the same thing in two different ways, in two different verses, right one after another, to make sure that we don't miss the point of his point. So seek those things which are above, back in verse 1, we already said it has this idea that we're striving earnestly for these things. But now here, set your mind on things above. It suggests something that's just a little bit different because it suggests that you're concentrating intently. So as believers, we should be striving earnestly and concentrating intently on heavenly things, right? We're to seek earnestly after heavenly things and we're to set our minds intently on heavenly things, right? So this talks about, you know, our mindful meditations, right? Where we put our thoughts about our thoughts, right? They should be on Jesus alone and the things that he has done for us, the things that only he can provide to us. Right? It's, it's not just, to, heaven is not just to dominate our emotions, but it needs to dominate our minds as well, right? It needs to dominate our thinking. And so our thoughts about heaven, our thoughts should be dominated by heaven. Our thinking, our judgments, our priorities, the decisions that we make should be dominated by the values of heaven. They should be dominated by the commands that come from the God who fills heaven. Our worldview should be dominated by the things of heaven. And these are the things that should constantly be filling our minds. Now, none of this means that we don't work hard in this world. None of this means that we don't pay our bills. It doesn't mean we don't take care of all of the details of our lives. Quite to the contrary. And we're going to see for the next three whole chapters, Paul's going to show us exactly how this heavenly focus will really impact all of those earthly issues. And can I tell you, some of it's going to get messy. And you may want to stay home, right? Because it's going to get ugly. Supremely, remember, we're not in this world. Um, pardon me, we're not of this world. We're only in this world, right? So we pay our bills and we work hard and we do all the other things we have to do here on earth but we do it with our hearts and our minds somewhere else entirely, don't we? Because we're citizens who are about a different kingdom, aren't we? You remember in, in chapter one, Paul talked about the fact that we've been delivered from the power of darkness and conveyed into the kingdom of the son of his love. And don't we love that fact? We love where we now live, right? Talk about location, 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 right? You may have heard that old saying that a person is so heavenly minded, he's no earthly good. You heard that expression? I would love to meet that person because I never have, right? You would think that this sort of proverbial group of people, that they were like legion in number, right? But show me one person like that, right? Show me anybody like that. 
you know, the, the, the truth is, and hear this, the truth is that it isn't until we are supremely heavenly minded, right? It isn't until we're dominated by the things of eternity and dominated by the thoughts of our Savior, dominated by those things that are uniquely ours in Jesus Christ. It's not until our minds are supremely focused on that that we'll be any good to anybody in this world. Just ask the people who have to live with you, right? There will come a day, right, if the Lord tarries and if he doesn't rapture us away. I was kind of hoping it would happen during worship, but it didn't. It would have spared you guys all of this. But if that blessed event doesn't happen, and, you know, if it doesn't happen before we come to the end of our lives, there will, in fact, come a time for each of us when we are near to the end of our lives and we have that time to really reflect back on our lives and to really assess our lives. And it's in those moments I can promise you that we will be so grateful for every opportunity that we used in this life to live now in this life that is uniquely ours as Christians and to really be seeking it with all of our hearts and to be setting our minds on those things and to be searching out these heavenly things, really seeing the beauty of it, which is as far and as wide and as deep as our human minds could ever enjoy. Anything we could possibly search out this side of heaven we see that it is everything that we could possibly need. As a matter of fact, one of the authors that I was reading this week made the suggestion regarding trying to define, you know, all of these wonderful things which are above. And he came to the conclusion, he believes, that they're undefinable. That we really can't quantify what that means. And I think that there's a sense in which he's right because you have one Christian who just found out that his child has cancer and he is seeking one thing from the throne of God. And you have a different Christian who may be struggling with some sort of terrible injustice that's been done to them and they are seeking yet a different thing from the throne of God. You've got another Christian who's just simply worn out. You know, the, I mean, the tank is empty. They've got nothing left. And they are seeking something else entirely there from the throne of God. We're all seeking something different, but we are all seeking things which are above where Christ is sitting there at the right hand of God and things that can only come and can only comfort and can only strengthen us because they come from that place. And all of it comes there and we find it in Jesus Christ. And what we need to understand is that all of these earthly concerns and any of this human tradition or philosophies of men or legalism or that extra biblical nonsense, any of that that we've allowed to creep in to the church or to creep into our lives, all of those things that would have us believe that we could somehow we should or we could be, you know, working and striving or we should be more focused on ourselves to improve ourselves or that we can somehow comfort ourselves. Even though all of those things have this appearance of wisdom, they all pull our minds and our attention 
and our affections and it pulls our hearts away from those real things that we can only find in Christ. And instead what Paul tells us, again, we should be striving earnestly, we should be concentrating intently on these heavenly things. Look at verse three, he says, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. So here it is, right? This is the reason that we need to live this way. This is the rationale behind all of this, and it's what lays right at the foundation of this kind of a commitment that we need to make to heavenly thinking and to heavenly living, is Paul says simply, it's because we have died to those things that we used to give our lives to, we've died to sin. Right? Over and over in the scriptures, you see that one of the main things that Paul longs for for us as Christians, is that we would simply realize what's already true of us in Christ. That not only did he die for us, but that we also died with him. Right? We're so intimately identified with him in his death, and in his death, not only did he pay the penalty for sin, but he broke the power of sin. Right? That power that sin once held over each one of us when we had no other choice but to give in to it. We had no other choice but to live as slaves to it. But Paul says now that Jesus has broken that hold that sin has over us and he broke it on our behalf in our lives even though it might not feel like that's the case all the time. Isn't it so true that most of the time we feel like our passions are very much still alive? Right? We feel like our desires to do the wrong things are very much alive within each one of us. But this is where we need to understand the reality of how this works as a Christian because Paul says to the Romans that you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus, right? We need to reckon or to count or to consider. Again, it's an active decision we make in our minds. And Paul is saying something so important to us. So if you were sleeping, wake up at this point, right? Because what he's saying is that the beginning point or the starting point in terms of living a life of holiness, right? In living life at a higher level, in achieving a sense of that real sanctification, the beginning point is to believe or to accept as a fact that we are dead to sin. Because if I don't believe the Bible, right, if I don't believe the truth, that this wonderful spiritual birth not only has saved me, but that it has released this incredible heavenly power now that's been introduced into my life. If I don't believe that, then I'll never actually step out in the exercise of that power and experience it. And I'm simply gonna continue to live a completely frustrated, defeated kind of a Christian life. And so all of this change that we want really just begins in our thinking because it's so true when they say that no one ever rises above what they simply believe to be true. 
And if our thinking concerning our lives as Christians, right, if what we really think down deep inside is, you know, I know the Bible says that about the Holy Spirit, but I don't really believe that that could possibly be true for me. If that's what you really believe, or if that's how you think you feel, then you're never going to change as long as you stay in that place. It doesn't matter how you feel because your feelings will always lie to you. And this is precisely the point that people get tripped up, especially in this sort of current cultural moment where we are in the history of Western society, when everything now comes down to, you know, what you are is based entirely on how you feel. The Bible says no to that. The Bible says that if you're in Christ, you are absolutely not what you feel. You might feel very much alive to your old sin. You might feel very much alive to these passions. You might feel that you're very, you know, still attracted to these certain things. But know this, Paul says, you're dead. That's what you need to know, is that you have died to all of that. So even though it doesn't feel like you're dead, you need to know that you're dead. And that's what the life of faith is all about. This is how we walk by faith. We say, you know, I know I have these feelings, but I also know that there's a greater truth out there. And that greater truth is that I'm dead to the power that those feelings have over me. So I'm not going to let those feelings control me. I'm going to let God control me. I'm going to let his word direct me. I'm going to let his spirit really empower me. And I'm going to trust that these feelings are going to get dealt with somewhere along the way. I want to tell you on the authority of the Bible that you are not a slave to that bottle. You are not a slave to those pills. You are not a slave to those websites. You're not a slave to that emotion or to continue to have that reaction. You can absolutely live above it and you can have victory over it. And Paul summed it up so well. One of my favorite statements in all of the New Testament, in Galatians chapter 2, he said this. He said, I have, you can read it with me if you want. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. He said, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Here's where it really gets good, you guys. Because this verse fleshes out what he's saying here to the Colossians. Not only have we died to sin, but we have also died to self. And now we live not to ourselves. We live unto him because he both lives in us and he lives through us. So living life on a higher level, right? We're seeking earnestly after these heavenly things. We're setting our mind intently on these heavenly things. And we need to let Jesus live his life now through us. And when we can get to that point, that is an absolutely wonderful reality to live in. As we just allow Jesus to live through us instead of us. Because look what Paul says here. He says, our lives are hidden in him. And I love the way that one author put this 
so much better than I could have, so I'm just going to read it to you. He said, because we were raised with Christ, we should act just as Jesus did when he was resurrected. He says, after his resurrection, Jesus left the tomb, and so should we. We don't live there anymore. He said, after his resurrection, Jesus spent his remaining time being with and ministering to his disciples, and so should we. Live our lives to be with and to serve one another. He says, after his resurrection, Jesus lived in supernatural power with the ability to do impossible things. And so should we with the power and the enabling of the Holy Spirit. And finally, after his resurrection, Jesus looked forward to heaven, knowing he would soon enough ascend there. And so should we, recognizing that our citizenship is there in heaven. That's what it means we've died to self, right? It's no longer us who live, it's Christ who lives in us. And this is such a liberating thing when we understand that when we were born again, we gave our very lives to the Lord, not just so that we could be saved, right? Not just so that we would know him as a savior, but really so that we could come to know him as Lord. Lord over our lives so that we're surrendering our lives to him now to use for his purposes for the remainder of our lives because our lives now belong to him. My life is now about him and his purposes for my life, right? Dead to sin, but alive by the Holy Spirit as Jesus lives through me. And that's the path to true life and to living it on a higher level. It's like Jesus said to us as his disciples, he says in Matthew 16, Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. So we are born again to give our lives to something entirely new that's provided for us by heaven itself. It's true life lived now for a purpose. Energized, empowered by this hidden power as Jesus lives his life through us. Do you remember when Jesus talked to Nicodemus in John chapter three, and he talked about being born again, and he said that it was a, a spiritual birth, and he talked about the fact that the spiritual birth was like the wind blowing through the trees, right, of the Holy Spirit. He said that the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. And so everyone who is born of the Spirit. In other words, you can't see the Holy Spirit in the same way that you can't see the wind. But you know that the wind exists because the, the way that it blows you know, through a tree and the sound that it makes. And that we know that the Holy Spirit is real because although we can't see him, we do see him because we see the effect that he's having on our lives once he's entered into our lives. And what Paul is saying here is that you know, there's this great spiritual reality that has now happened, but it's hidden, right? It can't be seen by other people, but that it still has occurred. And now because of this great connection or this, 
this union that we have with Christ, nobody else in the world can see it. Certainly nobody other than a Christian could even understand it. But what people absolutely can see, they can see the effect that that Holy Spirit now is having on our lives. They should be able to see the wind of the Holy Spirit blowing through our lives and shaping our lives and giving direction to our lives. They can see Jesus living out his life through our lives. We are hidden, we're safe, we're secure in him as we simply walk faithfully with him. Because I think that's an important thing to think about is that that sense of being hidden doesn't just mean invisible, it also means secure. Not just concealed, but also safe, because our life is now eternally safe, hidden in him. Right? Eternally, we're one with him. There's nothing that will ever separate us from him. As Paul wrote, that I'm persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So no matter what it is here on this earth that might try to, to, you know, to drag you down or to stop you up, we are so incredibly and inextricably connected to Jesus Right, because we died and now our life is hidden and safe in him in a way that defies even our imagination on the best day as we simply stay focused on him and we get heaven too, right? But wait, there's more, right? Paul tells us in a very last verse of this short passage, not only did we die with him, not only have we been raised with him, not only now are our lives to be lived empowered by him and are they safe in him, but Paul tells us that we're gonna do this right up until the time, it says in verse four, when Christ who is our life appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So we are safe, we are secure there, hidden in Christ, until either he returns for us at the rapture of the church or returns with us at the second coming to the earth with the church. Now, I do not want to get all caught up in a discussion about the rapture. Do you see what I did there? Caught up. The rapture, right? Good, right? Nor do I want to have to come back and return yet a second time to talk about the second coming. You see, once again, come back, right, return a second. Admittedly, that one wasn't good, but it's still pretty good, right? <laughs> Both of those things are in view here in this verse. But here's what I want us to simply see this morning. This verse tells us that there is a time to come when we will finally and fully be seen for who we now really are. When everyone in this world will finally see the saints of God for who they really are and not just for who we appear to be to this world. Again, one of my favorite authors says this. He says, Paul the prisoner 
an eccentric Jew to the Romans and a worse than Gentile traitor to the Jews will be seen as Paul the Apostle, the servant of the king. The Colossians, insignificant ex-pagans from a third-rate country town, will be seen in a glory which, if it were now to appear, one might be tempted to worship. And you can just insert your name, right, in whatever description, the way that you think that the world sees you now, because the reality of who you are has nothing to do with the reality of this world. The reality of who each one of us is as followers and believers in Jesus Christ, the reality of who we are is presently hidden in Jesus Christ, but it will one day be prophetically revealed for everyone to see. And at that point, perhaps finally, they will understand why Paul says here, that Christ is our life. Now those are searching words. So you may either want to underline them in your Bible or scratch them out of your Bible, right? Those are searching words. And they really give us kind of a, a, a you know, a cause to pause, if you will. Christ, our life. Sometimes you might hear somebody say, you know, oh yeah, you know, well, music is her life, right? Or sports is his life, or their kids are their life, right? Or he lives for his work, you know, or whatever it is that you would say about a person. But the truth is that for each of us as followers of Jesus, it should only ever be said of us that Jesus Christ is my life. He's the master passion of my life. He's the affection of my heart. He's the meditation. He's the motivation of my mind. He has a, a place of priority and of centrality in my life because he is my very life. And I'm living now in this life with this earnest expectation and this, this confident anticipation of an eternity spent in heaven, in glory, with him, right? So living life on a higher level, right? We are looking ahead to this glorious eternity that we will have with him and living constantly with this consciousness of the fact that heaven is our home, right? What does Peter say? That we're just sojourners. We're just pilgrims while we're here on this planet, right? And that Jesus could come back at any moment and take us right to that place with him. And if we can truly live in that consciousness and live with that consciousness each and every day, that has a wonderfully purifying effect, doesn't it, on our lives as Christians. It has a very needed purifying effect. When we live really with the desire of our hearts is that if and when the rapture does occur, if we're still here, that when it happens that we would be found watching for him and waiting for him and working on his behalf rather than being found 
right, engaged in or being pulled down by all of these pursuits and the cares and the concerns or of carnality or living lives that are dominated by the flesh or living lives where we're still fully engaged in sin or just simply living where our affections and our attentions are focused on the things of this world instead of on the things of heaven. And so Paul's reminding the church of Colossae and he's reminding us here in this last verse that we have a far greater destiny, God bless you, honey, than anything we will ever know or anything we will ever experience in this world. And that destiny is this unspeakable, indescribable glory of heaven. And the truth is that knowing this truth as reality for us as Christians, it will always produce a much holier Christian. It'll produce a more Christ-like Christian than what any false teacher could possibly be selling. Better than any human philosophy or better than any legalism that leads into that kind of pseudo-spiritualism, better than our best efforts to do those things on our own, and it will help us, a view like that will help us to simply persevere while we're here on this pilgrimage. Do you guys remember, of course, back from our study through Joshua, remember how the nation of Israel came right there to the border of the promised land and they refused effectively, they refused to enter because of their stubborn unbelief. And so they were effectively sort of sentenced to wander in the wilderness for 40 years as that whole generation of unbelief, right? Everybody 20 years and older, as they all died in the wilderness, except for who? Caleb and, jo oh, no, fair, I put their pictures right there. Of course, you recognize them from their Instagram feed, right? Except for Caleb and Joshua. They were the only two, remember that they were the only two spies who believed God. And we talked as we went through Joshua toward the end there, we think about how these two faith-filled men and their faith-filled spirits that were so sensitive to the Lord, how they were able to survive those 40 years of wandering in the wilderness as they continually were surrounded by the rebellion of all their fellow Israelites and they watched their friends each and every day watching their friends perish from unbelief and then coming into the promised land years and years of battling all of those pagan peoples to conquer the land and we talked about the fact how was it that Caleb and Joshua were able to you know kind of get the victory and really persevere during those long years in the wilderness on the way to that life in Canaan and the way that they were able to do it who remembers they did it because their minds and their hearts were already living in Canaan. Physically, they may have been wandering in the wilderness, but the reality that they were living in, they were living in the future reality of that promise. They knew that they had this inheritance coming, and so they lived and they fought and they persevered in light of that inheritance. Can I tell you that our inheritance is a much better inheritance, isn't it? Because it's a heavenly inheritance. And what Paul wants us to understand this morning is that in a very real sense, we can and we already should 
be living there now. We should be seeking those things which are above. We should be setting our minds on heavenly things. We should be letting the life of Jesus himself like live through us as we focus not on the circumstances and don't focus on the sin and don't focus on all of those things that are surrounding you and maybe threatening to overwhelm you, but we can really live a life that's on a higher level, that's, that's above all of those things. I know that sounded like my close, but it was only the first close. This is the last close. A quick story, I promise it's a quick story and I think it makes sense. I think the Lord told me to put it in, but as a young Christian, right, and as a young pastor, I remember always really loving to go to a pastor's conference. You know, once a year, we go to these conferences or maybe to go to a men's conference. And of course, a weekend like that, there's so much great teaching and there's great worship and there's great times just to be focused singularly on the Lord. And one of the things that used to strike me as I would kind of watch, you know, sort of my own heroes of the faith, right? Those pastors who would teach at these conferences, you know, watching Pastor Chuck Smith or, or John Corson or, or Steve Mays or Brian Broderson or whoever, men who I really still respect and admire. But I was always so amazed and ministered to, not just by what they taught, but maybe even more so by how they were after they taught or how they were before they taught. Because as I watched them, kind of from my seat in the back of the auditorium, there was always a huge crowd that was milling around them, wanting something from them, needing attention of them, right? Pressing constantly in to kind of get to them. And yet as I watched these men, they just simply seemed to float. It was almost like they were floating above all of that, right? And they had time for everyone and they had not a concern except for the person who was right there in front of them who they were talking to and as I watched it took me longer than it should have because I'm not super sharp but as I watched one day it dawned on me that's the way that Jesus lived and I think that that's the precise picture that we see of Jesus as expressed in the gospels you talk about crowds pressing in Right, you talk about people needing things from him, people desperate to simply touch any part of him that they could. And yet, what do we see? We see that Jesus was unmoved by the pressure. He was undaunted by the crowds. He was unflappable, if you will, by his situation because he always just seemed to live way above those circumstances. Of course, he lived on this higher level and I believe the message for us this morning is that he wants to do that same thing now but he wants to do it through us he wants to live on a higher level through us so that we can live at a higher level in him right that spirit filled spirit focused life that's just completely dominated, not by our circumstances and not by our surroundings, but dominated by the realities of heaven. Amen? Amen. And we're still done early. So Father, we thank you, Lord, for your text, Lord. We thank you for just such a great encouragement, Lord, that Paul gives to us. Lord, a, a, a simple message, Lord, that somehow I've managed to overcomplicate and yet 
I pray, Lord, that by the power of your spirit, you would write the simplicity of this truth on each of our hearts this morning. Father, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to seek those things which are above, Lord, to set our minds on these things which are above, Lord, to simply let the, the Lord Jesus, Lord, live his life through each one of us as we just look ahead in anticipation to spending eternity in heaven with him. And so we thank you, Lord, and we praise you. Lord, and we do it in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.